Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for yet another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and or conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 35 for the third quarter of May 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is photographic claims related to the Apollo moon hoax, part two. In part one, or episode 31, I addressed several of the claims about how the photographs were taken, as opposed to alleged anomalies within the photographs themselves. This episode is more of the latter, where I'm going to focus on crosshairs and shadows. Stuff like stars in the photos and the sea rock will be saved for a future episode or episodes, although it is somewhat addressed in the puzzler for episode 31. I'm going to be using audio clips from Bart Cybrell's docudrama, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon, during this episode. There will also be several supporting images on the website for this episode, and since I'm a masochist with no time, I'm toying with the idea of making something like a YouTube video for this episode in order to help illustrate these claims. If anyone has particularly strong feelings about me making a movie of this episode, or video about this episode, please get back to me by emailing me at podcast at sjrdesign.net. With that said, let's get started. The first two claims I'm going to talk about are related to crosshairs. If you've ever looked at Apollo images, you may remember seeing crosshairs littered throughout the scene. These are also called fiducials, or reticules, or reticles, and they were physically etched on a glass plate that was placed between the camera lens and the film prior to launch. They were etched with a uniform thickness and size, and they were lined to the image edges. The center one was a little bit bigger than the rest. These crosshairs were put in there to establish a geometric basis for measuring objects in the photos. Back in the day of analog and before Photoshop, people could use the crosshairs to correct for misalignments of the film and the camera, distortions of the image after development or scanning, or figuring out angular sizes of objects that were photographed. It's basically like putting graph paper over the image itself. The first anomaly claim to do with fiducials is advanced by Bennett and Percy's book, Dark Moon, on page 68. They state, In some photographs, the large crosshair is not centered, and in others, the grid is not aligned with the image boundaries. Now, I'm starting with that quote because it's the most anachronistic of the ones I'm going to talk about today, and the rebuttal is something that I'd expect most people to know about today. It's called crop and rotate. Especially in this day and age, I've not really seen people make this particular claim because of the saturation of image processing software out there that every five-year-old and their grandmother knows about. Remember, this was a PR campaign with some science tacked on at the end. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. John F. Kennedy's speech made absolutely no mention of the science. He didn't say, because there are fundamental science questions that can be answered by landing people on the moon. I mean, again, this was clearly, at least in a lot of people's eyes, 
to prove to the Soviets and the rest of the world that America and its democracy and everything else was better than the Soviets were. So, in NASA's press office, you can imagine a dozen or a hundred or two hundred people poring over the latest thousand photographs returned from the last Apollo mission. One of them finds a good photo of an astronaut descending the lunar module's ladder onto the lunar surface. But there's a problem with it. It looks like the ladder is straight up and down, the astronaut looks like they're going to fall off, and the horizon is all tilted. So, this nameless press officer orders a duplicate, takes the duplicate, rotates it on his table, and lops triangles off of the edge in order to make it now rectangular. And he has an astronaut proudly descending onto the lunar surface, ready to explore a strange new world. But the crosshairs are now all tilted, and the big one is not in the center. Darn. What's my evidence for this? Well, Every single image with the crosshairs not lining up with the image edges or the big one not centered are rectangles. The film used was square. Cropping must have happened in order to make a square a non-square. The next claim still has to do with crosshairs, but this time instead of them being rotated, they disappear, which is what we hear in Bart Seibrell's movie. Here, a crosshair, which was burned directly into the image from the film plate, and thus should always appear on top of the objects in the photograph, appears behind the object in this scene, clearly revealing a composite of two pictures into one. Any photographer in the audience listening right now will probably know right away why Cybrell is wrong, and the term is two words, dynamic range. Any device, analog or digital, audio or pictorial, or anything else, can only record something over a specific range. In episode 32, Derek Bartholomus talked about this briefly with cassette tapes only able to record a certain frequency or pitch of sound, or a range of sound. To explain this with photos, we're going to think of things digitally as opposed to analogly. Imagine a small piece of film as a small bucket for light. Light we're going to treat as a particle or a photon. If you have a really bright light source, it's emitting a lot of photons, and those are going to fill the bucket quickly. A faint light source is going to fill your bucket more slowly. Meanwhile, the bucket is only so big. If you leave it out to collect light for a long time, it's going to get filled up, and all you can say is that in that spot, you got at least that many photons. You can't get any more information because the photons spilled over the sides of the bucket and couldn't be recorded. If you had a deeper bucket, then you'd be able to leave it out to gather photons longer because it's deeper. It has a bigger dynamic range. So now, let's go back to the film analogy. Each film grain is similar to our bucket. It can only record light over a certain dynamic range. If the shutter is open too long, or if the light source is too bright, then the bucket fills up and saturates, and that spot is going to appear white. Now let's say you put a little shield over it that blocks some of those photons. Some will still get through, others won't. But regardless, if you leave that grain exposed too long, it gets filled up with photons and still will be saturated. Now let's expand this to two dimensions. Tile your buckets so that you have a 3x3 three three grid. You have a shield over one of the buckets in the middle, or over the bucket in the middle, that prevents some of the photons from hitting it. 
but you have eight other buckets that surround it. And when those get saturated, some of the photons are going to spill over into the bucket that had the shield partly over it. With buckets, I've now explained this entire claim away. If the fiducials disappeared in an Apollo photo, it was always behind a bright white object. It's because the dynamic range wasn't large enough and or because of bleeding over when the film was processed that you don't see the crosshair, that it disappears. Or it's because it's a copy of 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 a copy. Anyone who's run off photocopies know that each time you make another copy of a copy, you lose detail. Teeny tiny thin fiducials are going to be lost really quickly. Finally, this claim on its face is kind of stupid. NASA had about 5% of the nation's budget during the Apollo era. Now we're at less than 0.5% of the nation's budget, but that's a different podcast. The idea that NASA is going to fake these photos by adding in crosshairs after the fact is just stupid. It would have been so much simpler just to quote-unquote fake the photos the way that NASA said they took the photos by having the glass plate in there rather than having to make a composite with the crosshairs for every single one of the thousands of Apollo photographs. And yet, the hoax people have never really brought up this point, probably because it makes them sound pretty stupid. We're going to now move off of the crosshairs and on to the first of the two shadow claims. Here, the shadows are shown to be as black as pitch. And yet here, completely in a shadow, the astronaut is lit up like a Christmas tree. How can this be? When I do live talks about this and first bring up this claim, I start off by asking people how many can see the screen that I'm giving the presentation on. Usually only about two-thirds of the people raise their hands, although I'm never quite sure why it's not everyone unless they're all asleep. Then I show a picture of an astronaut descending the lunar module ladder onto the moon, and I ask how many can see the moon in the photo. I think that the audience thinks that it's a trick question, because at that point only about half of people usually raise their hands. It's not a trick question. The fact that you can see anything that is not emitting light, as in a light source like the sun or a light bulb or your computer screen or something else, is that light bounces off of things. In fact, at least as far as I've been able to tell, we don't know of a single substance that does not reflect any light. And before people ask me about black holes, no, black holes are not a substance off of which light could reflect, and so that doesn't count. Even fresh asphalt will reflect about 4% of the light that hits it. As an aside, we don't know of anything that will also reflect 100% of the light that hits it. Fresh snow reflects around 80-90% to of light that hits it, while mirrors are generally around 99-ish percent, not 100. That's why astronomers don't want to use a bunch of mirrors in their telescopes, because each time the light reflects off of the surface, you lose a little bit of it. Anyway, the reason that I go into this is that, as I said, light bounces. If you have a mirror, then it will bounce back at a known angle based upon optical scaling laws. If you have a normal surface like, say, the moon or a piece of paper or something, then because of the texture, light will reflect in all directions. That's called scattering. 
And so in photographs or video of an astronaut or object that's in shadow of something else on the moon, the way that we see them is because light only comes from one source, the sun. It then reflects off the lunar surface, scattering in all directions, including some of that onto the astronaut. And then the light that hits the astronaut will also scatter in all directions, some of it into the camera lens and thus be recorded. Hence, we get to see them even though there's only one light source, the object that's in shadow. Now, to prove this to yourself, go into a smallish room like a bathroom or a lavatory or whatever you call it in your country. Leave the light off and the door open, but leave a light on that's outside of the room. The room that you're in should be in shadow. The only light source should be the single light outside of the room. If you can see anything in the room that you're in, then that proves that objects in shadow caused by a single light source can still be lit. As another aside, the reason that I didn't say to go stand in the shadow of a tall building or something is because I'm sure that there would be some anal person who'd email me and say, but the sky is bright, and so there isn't a single light source during the day of the sun, the sky also lights stuff up. Well, that's why you're doing this experiment inside. The next shadow claim has to do with what the shadows look like. When objects are lit solely by the sun, as all the scenes on the moon were said to be, after all, lighting equipment was not only impractical, it was unnecessary in bright sunlight, then all shadows, regardless of the landscape, will run parallel with one another and never intersect, as shown by this example. In these seldom-seen photographs, obtained from a rarely used auxiliary NASA archival site, it is clear that these scenes were lit with artificial light. These shadows, which are cast at different angles, are evidence that a second light source is being used. Again, intersecting shadows, and again, and again. It is simply impossible for this picture to have been taken with sunlight on the moon. If I do end up doing a video edition of this episode, the clip that accompanies this audio is priceless because it contradicts itself in terms. The narrator says that regardless of topography, shadows remain parallel. She lies. They show you parallel shadows cast by trees and telephone poles upon grass and the road and say that that's different topography, but it's not. Both are flat, or at the same angle relative to up and down. Then, they just happen to show a car that drives by. The few frames that have the car also have one of the shadow cast upon the car, and it's perpendicular to the other shadow. That's different topography, and non-parallel shadows. So right there, I've already explained why this claim is wrong, at least in part. Topography. You can see this for yourself if you go outside and look at trees casting shadows upon a hill. As the slope of the hill changes, the apparent shadow direction of the trees also change, even though there's only a single light source. The other reason that you get non-parallel shadows is because of perspective. This is something that you probably learned but forgot about from middle school art class. At least in mine, we had to draw something like a desert scene with a road leading to the horizon line and telephone poles lining the road. The poles get smaller and smaller as they get closer to the horizon line and the sides of the road converge even though they're parallel lines. 
but that's because of perspective. Again, go and do this yourself if you can. Go outside to a long stretch of road and look at light poles or telephone poles and look at the shadows that they cast. They will not be parallel as they go off into the distance. They will appear to change direction because of perspective and foreshortening. And so people who make this particular claim have forgotten their lessons from middle school art. For shame. But meanwhile, every hoax proponent that I've ever heard or read completely ignores what must be the case if you have multiple light sources that are casting multiple shadows in different directions from objects that appear close by. Each object must cast shadows in both directions. Anyone who works in theater knows this, that if you have two or more lights on the stage, not only will multiple objects cast shadows in different directions, but each object will cast all of those shadows. And yet, perhaps surprisingly, no hoax proponent will ever bring this up. And those are really the main shadow and crosshair claims that people make in order to promote the hoax idea that we never landed astronauts on the moon. As I said, there are some more photography claims, but those will be addressed in a future episode or episodes. Hopefully, by this one, you can start or continue to see why it's so easy to make up a hoax and so hard to refute it quickly and easily. Claims are simple to make. Explaining why they're wrong takes knowledge of many different things. In just this episode, I talked about image processing, the physics of how photographs are actually recorded, optical properties of material and light, and concepts from art and theater, although theater could be considered an art. In the part one episode of Photography Claims, I talked about common sense, optics, camera mechanics, physics of radiation, and physics of heat transfer. Meanwhile, all the hoax proponents have to do is spend five seconds to ask a stupid question or two. In this episode, I've decided to include what will likely be an infrequent segment. Or maybe not, we'll see. That of news related to a previous episode that updates the information I discussed before. The reason for this segment is to emphasize the fact, and I do mean fact here, that science is always changing and updating itself as new information becomes available. I've personally found it somewhat frustrating when listening to older science-based podcast episodes and they have out-of-date information that no one's updated, so hopefully this will prevent someone from accusing me of doing the same. The case for the discussion now comes from a new paper published in Science, one of the premier science journals of the world. The article is entitled, The Heliosphere's Interstellar Interaction, No Bow Shock, by Macomos et al. The article talks about new observations by the Interstellar Boundary Explorer spacecraft, also known as IBEX. The craft has been observing neutral atoms, meaning that they have no net electric charge, in order to understand the environment of the galaxy that the solar system is currently moving through. The new result from this article that's relevant to a previously discussed topic on this podcast is that the latest IBEX results have revised the speed with which we thought the solar system was moving through the galaxy. We thought the sun was moving through the interstellar neighborhood at about 26 kilometers per second, 
but that value has now been revised downwards to about 23 kilometers per second, or by around 11%. It's not a huge deal, it's not going to cure cancer, and it's not big in terms of upsetting everything we thought we knew about the universe. But this has implications for 2012 stuff, specifically what I discussed in episode 15 on galactic alignments. I'd given some values in that episode about how our solar system was moving through and out of the plane of the galaxy at a certain rate, as opposed to moving towards the galaxy in order to, you know, get to the galactic plane or the galactic center in December of this year. With this, it's now moving out of a plane at 11% a slower rate than what I said before. Note, it is still moving out of the plane of the galaxy, not towards the plane of the galaxy. It's just moving a little slower, as opposed to scientists finding that we're actually moving at 10 times the speed of light in order to get to the plane of the galaxy later this year. So again, this doesn't change anything that I said in terms of the conclusions of episode 15, but it is an update to the numbers. I'll also post a few articles about this to the show notes for this episode. Also, in the news this past week, or between this episode and the last, is what, at least to this particular non-archaeologist, seems to be a major discovery about the ancient Maya. I mean, it even made it on to Coast to Coast AM. I'll link up to both the article and Huan's blog post about it in the show notes. He's the Mayan archaeologist that I interviewed a few episodes ago. This article also appeared in the journal Science this week, and the title is Ancient Maya Astronomical Tables from Zultun, Guatemala, by Saturno et al. These researchers found a very, very old Mayan hut, estimated to date from the classic period of the Maya, which was around 200 to 900 CE, or AD, or whatever date system you want to use. Most of what we know about the Mayan astronomical tables and calendars and stuff comes from the post-classic period, or about 1300 to 1521 CE, or AD, or whatever. The archaeologists found large tables that say when the moon will rise, and what phases it will be, and how it corresponds to their religious system, but it plans them over long periods of time. It also has tables that show when the Mars and Venus will be up and where they'll be. What's important here, as a follow-up to episode 14 on the Maya in 2012, is that these tables include dates that go very, very far past this particular long count cycle that we're in now, far past 2012 on our own calendar. This is important because one of the key things for 2012ers is that the Mayans, first off, ended their calendar in 2012, and second, they quote-unquote said that the world will end at the end of their calendar. But as we explained in episode 14, neither of those are true, and this new research shows that the Mayans were very capable of calculating out long periods of time, and did so for dates that go well past and well beyond next seven months of our own calendar. With the new New News segment out of the way, this episode's question for Q&A comes from Chris B. from Australia, who asks, Now, I always tell my kids that the apparent variation in the size of the moon in the sky is an optical illusion, and that you can always cover the moon's disk with your thumb if your arm is outstretched. Cloud prevented me from testing this proposition on the night of the big moon, aka the supermoon. So can you tell me, does the proposition hold in all circumstances, including this perigee moon situation? The answer is yes. 
The angular size of the moon varies from 29.3 to 34.1 arc minutes. In other words, roughly about 15% in size. Everyone's thumb varies in width, and everyone's arm varies in length. And you can sometimes stretch your arm out a little farther if you sort of rotate your shoulders a little bit or whatever. The numbers I've seen are that your thumb held at arm's length is roughly half a degree, or roughly 30 arc minutes in size. So one could say that the rule of thumb holds generally in most circumstances for this. If your thumb normally covers the full moon, it will also probably have covered the supermoon, and the next supermoon. So that short answer wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. And so this week we have feedback related to last episode's topic on how the pyramids are not aligned with the three belt stars of Orion. I have a clarification to make. A few people pointed out, rightly so, that I should have taken into account stellar proper motion in my alignment attempt. Proper motion is a star's motion through the sky when viewed from our solar system. Proper motion of stars is generally measured in units of milli arc seconds per year. You may recall that an arc second is one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. There are 60 arc minutes in a degree, just like 60 minutes in an hour, and there are 60 arc seconds in each arc minute, just like there are 60 seconds in a minute. We're talking about motion on the order of one thousandth of that. Still, we're also talking about long periods of time. Modern archaeologists put the construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza at around 2500 BC, or around 4500 years ago. Graham Hancock puts it at about 10,000 years ago. I updated the show notes for last episode to have a version 2 of the alignment that shows both the present position of the three belt stars and their position 4,500 years ago. You can just sort of double the difference to get it about 10,000 years ago. And you can see there is still no match. It's just about as far off as it was before. And before someone asks about precession... Procession is where the entire sky moves, not just individual stars in different directions. So procession does not help you get out of an alignment problem, although it would mean that you'd have to rotate the sky differently, or the pyramids differently, in order to get them to match up. And no, it's not enough to account for the 160-degree rotation that's needed to get it to align today. And now the fourth segment after the main section is that it's time for the puzzler, where each odd quarter episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking-based question loosely based upon the material discussed in the main segment. Last episode's was, can two different objects, when illuminated by a single distant light source, ever cast non-parallel shadows? After much cursing and consternation, Chu, yet again, was the first to respond with an answer. And the answer was yes. Why? Go back about 10 minutes in this episode. This episode, with the main segment on more photography claims of the Apollo moon hoax scenario, the question deals with a related claim. And I will warn you now, it may seem like a simple, straightforward question, but it's a bit tricky. Or you'll need to be very explicit in your answer. And I don't mean by using profanity when I say be explicit. What was the first spacecraft to orbit the moon 
after Apollo that would have been able to photograph and resolve the Apollo landing sites. Try to figure out the answer? Send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next Odd Quarter episode. And that next Odd Quarter episode will be about radiometric dating. And so if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on that, please send it in. The last segment is announcements, and I have two for this episode. The first announcement I have is to please let me know what you think of the new, and likely occasional, segment on news items that relate to previous episodes. I came up with it kind of as a spur-of-the-moment thing, and I'm interested about what you think. I do plan on having it right after the main segment, before all of the other ones like Q&A, Feedback, Puzzler, and stuff. So if you have opinions about where it's placed within the podcast as well, please let me know that too. The second announcement is that there is a quote-unquote total annular solar eclipse on May 20th, 2012, visible from most of the western U.S. and Canada, as well as eastern China, Japan, and a few other countries. Chances are, if it's visible to you, you've already seen it on your local news, but I'll post a link to a map that shows its visibility in the show notes. I'll personally be driving south about six hours to get into the path where the moon will go fully through the center of the sun, as opposed to here in Colorado, where it goes a bit below it, so it will be a partial annular eclipse as visible from Colorado. The reason that it's an annular eclipse is because we did just have that quote-unquote supermoon when it was full, meaning that because the moon orbits on an elliptical path when it was full last time, it just happened to be near its closest approach to Earth. This means that, again, because it's on an elliptical path, that when it's new, it's going to be at its most distant from Earth, and so it's going to look smallest, and so it's not going to be able to completely cover the disk of the sun even if it goes right through the center. That's why we call it an annular eclipse, because you will still see a little annulus, or ring, of the sun around the moon. That wraps up this topic for the 35th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net or even the Facebook page. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, the Facebook page, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net or fourth leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website i read every email and i appreciate the feedback if you have suggestions for topics please feel free to make them except for velikovsky if you like this podcast please write a review and rate it on itunes also tell your friends family and other people